do is take up a special offering for international missions. Uh, We name after an international missionary, Lottie Moon. And so I would encourage you to continue to pray. We kicked this off last week. If you've not yet given to this offering, uh, continue to pray about how you can give. As you just saw, there, there is a great opportunity to partner with missionaries who are reaching some very difficult places for the sake of the gospel. And uh, the two missionaries you just saw, uh, that's just an example of what's happening all over this world through the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. So, would encourage you to begin uh, to, to pray if you haven't already, and please give. Uh, all that you give to this offering goes to international missionaries on the field, and so it's a great way for you to support the work of the gospel. Let's take our Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1 as you're doing that. Uh, let's thank our joy choir once again. Wasn't that a blessing this morning? And as always, so grateful for the leadership of Martha Alleygood. Thank you for working with our uh, Joy Choir. All that you do, I'm pretty sure I want Tom Moich to narrate my life. Um, And now, Pastor Scott's coming to the pulpit. All right, something like that. If we could work that in like a play-by-play, that'd be great as well. Luke chapter 1. As we begin this morning, I do have to, to say I got permission for the following story. Uh, My middle son, Micah, last Sunday, uh, upon seeing the title that is behind me, we've been studying, we started last week, uh, the Magnificat, which is Mary's uh, song of praise in response to not only the message that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, but upon greeting Elizabeth and getting this great confirmation from Elizabeth and the yet unborn John the Baptist, that indeed all of this was real, and the two women were going to bear uh, sons that were critical to this new work or the fulfillment of the work God was going to be doing in Christ. When my son Micah saw that, you know what he read? Magnificat, all right? And I think I disappointed him when he found out I wasn't going to be talking about a superhero cat, all right? Uh, so, we're not talking about Magnificat, we're talking about the Magnificat. And, and again, what an opportunity we have to look at this song as we are looking in this month of Christmas at the songs of Christmas, uh, the psalms that are written in response to these stories that uh, are given in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke kind of gives us a pause and allows us to theologically reflect on what's going on in these stories. And so the first reflection we have comes from Mary. And we started this last week looking at what is this profound song of praise uh, as Mary, again, responds to this confirmation of the work that God is doing in her life. She pins, and by the way, let me stress this, I absolutely believe Mary wrote this. You'll, you'll hear some uh, less than faithful interpreters of Scripture, uh, certainly liberals who would say, no, this wasn't even written by Luke. And, uh, but I think Mary did this. Yeah, I think a teenage bride, about 15 years old, I think Mary is responsible for this content. She composes for us what is a traditional Hebrew psalm uh, and in so doing provides truly this, this profound expression of praise for God's sovereign intervention what he is about to do 
through the coming of the Messiah. In other words, when, Ma, when, when Mary heard from Gabriel that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, she understands in some part what that means. Now, she doesn't understand in full. She doesn't yet know the cross, the resurrection. These are not yet theological concepts that she would necessarily draw out of this, but she does know this is the one promised in Genesis 3, that the seed of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. This is the promise made to Abraham about the seed coming from him that would be the Messiah. It is, it is the fulfillment of the promise made to David about the one coming from David would be a forever king on a forever throne. It is the fulfillment of the promise of Isaiah that unto us a, a child would be born. She understands this. So these, this is a song of praise that I think really helps us theologically reflect on Christmas, in particular, on the nature of God. Four realities about the nature of God. We've already looked at two. Uh, we'll try and uh, get to all this this morning. So we've looked at two already. The great glory of God. The great glory of God. So she begins by saying, My soul magnifies the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord. This God who is mighty and holy, she draws our attention to God's great glory. She also draws our attention then to number two, the intervening goodness of God. These are the qualities we looked at last Sunday. So this morning, let's just take a few minutes and think then about number three, and that is the saving purpose of God. The saving purpose of God. So now as we turn our attention to verse 50, Mary's going to kind of draw back here. Up to this point, she's talked personally. Here is what God has done for me. He has considered this lowly maidservant. God is my Savior. God has done great things for me. This, by the way, is not an unusual feature of the Psalms. But the psalmist would begin with this kind of personal, intimate reflection on what God has done for them. But Mary recognizes that while God has chosen her for a very specific purpose, she's just a cog in God's sovereign machine. As I said last week, she is merely a spoke in God's wheel. That's all she is. She is a means to God's end. She is nothing less than that, but she's nothing more than that. And so what she does is she draws then the curtain back a bit, and beyond just what God has done for her, she makes it clear that what's coming with Christ is a fulfillment of God's work of salvation for all who would believe. So so notice how she says this in verse 50. And His mercy is on those who fear Him from generation to generation. Now, again, verse 50 is kind of like a transition. She's moving away from herself. She's going to show how this is part of a much larger plan of God. And this is almost like another thesis kind of statement. She's really drawing out this saving work. And you've got to love all the language that is used here. His mercy is on those who fear Him. The language of mercy is understandable to us. This really, perhaps most technically, could be God's mercy is God not doing to me what He could do to me. In other words, if you think about mercy and grace... Now, she's already talked about grace. God's done great things, but God's mercy has also been demonstrated. How so? In the fact that God has not judged her for her sin, but forgiven her. This is an act of mercy. 
God's mercy is demonstrated through the Christmas story and that what God could do, God could judge like we see numerous examples of in the Old Testament. We know prophetically it's coming. God could judge. But what has God done in the Christmas story? What has God done in the birth of Christ, the Son of God, taking on flesh, one day taking on the sins of those who would believe and bearing God's wrath against those sins, that those who believe would have everlasting life? What what has God done but shown mercy? And notice that next phrase, has shown mercy to those who fear Him. To those who fear Him. And then Mary wants to make this clear. This isn't just about the here and now. Because he goes, she goes on to say, from generation to generation. In other words, those who know God's mercy are those who have a right understanding of who He is. When you see the phrase, the fear of God, we don't want to misunderstand that. Too often folks hear the word fear and what do we automatically think of? We think of phobias, right? Perhaps that is a feature of what, you know, what may, may be unique to our culture. And when we think of fear, you know, we think about these debilitating kinds of phobias of some kind. That's not what he's talking about here. Not sure why we've developed this idea in our culture that fear somehow is a bad thing. I think fear is a really good thing, right? It's why I don't get too high up on ladders. It's why I don't work on roofs, all right? I told folks Wednesday night, it's why if something goes wrong electrically in my house, guess who's not working on it? Me, all right? I'm not. I may let you do it, all right? But I'm not going to do it, okay? Because I have a healthy fear of falling off my roof, all right? I have a healthy fear of shocking myself. There's nothing wrong with that. What is that? I would argue it's a kind of respect, okay? The Bible says we are to fear God. That means we have a deep reverence, awe, and respect for God. It is a recognition of who God is. In fact, it's a recognition of who God is in light of who I am. It is a deep and profound appreciation for what is the great transcendence and holiness of God. And I think Mary's language here is so telling because she says God's mercy is on those who fear Him. This is Old Testament language of salvation. What can I do when I'm faced with such holiness? When I'm faced with such might? When I'm faced with such greatness? What is left but to only depend upon His mercy? When staring straight into the face of the transcendence of God, how is there any capability on my part to earn His favor? Of course not. How could there be? No, what is my, what is my desperate need? I need His I need His mercy. God's mercy is on those who fear Him from generation to generation. Those who have a deep appreciation for what is the almightiness of God. Let me just encourage everybody here again with this idea. This is an important and appropriate response at at Christmas. We think about what it means to fear the Lord. Because Mary's really going to go on and express this in greater detail. She's going to give us some contrast here between those who fear the Lord and those who don't. And I think it's helpful to us, particularly if there's somebody here who doesn't know Christ as Savior, understand that your standing before God then is going to be an attempt to make it based on your own works and on your own efforts. And to stand before God with nothing but your works will invite from this God nothing but judgment. Nothing but judgment. 
to, to have a healthy, deep reverence and respect for God is to submit to the fact I can't be saved unless God saves me. Is this not the message of the gospel? Is this not the gospel of God's grace? Is this not why Christ had to be born of a virgin, crucified, resurrected? Because in and of myself, I can't save myself. My need is for a Savior. And I need God in His mercy to grant that. So notice how she goes on to reflect on this. She's going to give us some contrasting kind of language. Talking about those who do and those who don't. Verse 51. He's shown strength with His arm. By the way, that's a connection to those who fear Him. To those who fear Him, God has shown strength with His arm. But then the contrast. He scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Scattered the proud. So we're already getting a better idea then of what it means to fear God. Those who fear God indeed enjoy what is His provision and salvation, His lifting up, His strengthening, His rescue. Those who are proud, scattered in the imagination of their hearts. This is the very opposite of fearing God. Pride. When he says pride here, what what she's talking about, she's talking about those who would dare to believe. That they have enough sense in their own mind to know how to be right in God's eyes. Those who would dare say, in fact, beyond that, those who would suggest, I can do what I want and live how I want, it would be akin to those folks today who might say, I just try and be a good person and do good things. That is pride. It is pride to assume I can do enough good things to earn God's favor. And the warning here from Mary, what does God do? Scatters the proud. You notice that second phrase? How striking. In the imagination of their hearts. The imagination of their hearts. I really think this is akin to saying those who think they can make their own path, do their own thing, and determine what it means to be saved or be made right with God or get to heaven are in essence playing a game of make-believe. Stuff they come up with in their own heads. The imagination of their own heart. And this is another warning to us. Listen, church, I know maybe you don't expect to get this at Christmas time, but I think what a great time of year to really drive this home. We need to continually be on guard against one of the mantras of our culture today. And that is, follow your own dreams. Look into your own heart. See, look, look and see what, what, what you've got and what you can do. You've got to believe in yourself. That is horrible. Horrible advice. Don't do any of that. The imagination of your heart only leads you to pride, which only means you will be scattered. Now, I desperately need intervention here. This is what Mary is so excited about. God has intervened with His mercy. Those who fear Him will not face this kind of reality. Listen, church, I think this is a real warning to us. You and I as believers and even, you know, facing the world around us, we've got to be really careful because often we think a lot of the thoughts that we think even though our thoughts aren't really worth thinking. How about that? Write that one down, all right? We think a lot of the thoughts that we think even though a lot of our thoughts are not worth thinking. In other words, we've got a lot of imagination in our hearts. We've got a lot of ideas. We certainly think our opinions are something special. And listen, you know who should hear that most of all? The dude is preaching, all right? You want to talk about a guy who thinks a lot of his thoughts. My goodness, how desperately do I need to be reminded of the gospel. 
desperately do I need to be reminded, I am nothing but a fool who deserves everlasting judgment were it not for God's mercy to intervene. God scatters the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Now she's going to double up on that, by the way. She's going to follow a negative with another negative. Look what he says verse 52. He's put down the mighty from their thrones. The mighty. So we have the proud. Now we have the powerful, right? We have those who think they're something because they have positions of authority. But what has God done? God has cast them down. God's kicked them out. It is a spiritual heavenly coup, right? And these folks who think they have position, power, authority. Is that not the height of, I don't know about irony, but certainly it is an odd picture that, that Mary's words here come after the birth of, or the statement about the birth of a baby, right? We've got a baby that's going to be born. And what's her thought? The powerful have been kicked off their throne. Is that not profound? And then she follows it with the positive, by the way. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Verse 52, and exalted the lowly, the humble. By the way, again, it's classic biblical language about salvation. The means by which we're made right with God does require of us humility. It requires humility to say, I can't figure this out on my own. It requires humility to say, yes, I am a sinner, dead in my trespasses and sin, unable to save myself. In fact, the very essence of the Christmas story, do we recognize what the Christmas story is saying? That man was so bad off in his situation, God had to come down himself to do something about it. Have you all ever had a problem in your life, or maybe it's a workplace or home situation, where rather than call somebody else, you made a statement like this, well, if it's going to be done right, I guess I'm just going to have to go do it myself. Right? Anybody ever said that? How bad does my condition have to be? That the only way, now keep this in mind, that the only way I could be made right with God is for the second person of the Trinity through the work of the Holy Spirit to be conceived in the womb of Eve so that he would be both fully God and fully man, not corrupted by sin, sin's nature that gets, that gets passed along, to be physically born, to live perfect life so that he might die on the cross and raise from, be raised from the dead. I mean, do we recognize how bad this has to be? This is the only way in which God can save. No, we're pretty much a mess, right? For God to say, if this is going to be done right, I'm going to have to go do it myself. Saving purposes of God. That God has mercy on those who fear Him. Scatters the proud in their imagination. He brings down the mighty, but He exalts the lowly. It reminds me of James saying, God gives grace to the humble. But to the proud, he resists. Again, it's a profound statement. I think recognizes what is really going on here in the Christmas story. We are a people who are in need of God's intervention. And then finally, verse 53. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he sent away empty. So another, another language that's salvific, right? that, in other words, that draws our, our, our minds to salvation. Because she doesn't say, and has filled their mouths with food, right? 
notice it's very intentional. Filled the hungry with good things. So what does this mean? She means more than somebody being physically hungry, right? In other words, it's similar to what Jesus said in his first sermon. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? For they shall be satisfied. They shall be filled. This is the language that's being used here about him. That here, here, is, the, here is the one, Christ, who fills the hungry with good things. What does it mean to be hungry? It's the same kind of thing as fearing God, being humble, uh, avoiding pride. It's recognizing that what I have, I have. Because God's given it to me. And this, by the way, is, is, is contrasted then with that statement, the rich he sent away empty. This is not a blanket condemnation on people who have money. The reference here to the rich and the way that it's written is clearly describing those who are depending upon their wealth. Those who are assuming that their, their resources, material resources, are the source by which they are going to be made right with God. Or perhaps just... They're responsible for their own salvation. Or maybe they're not even thinking in those terms. They're just merely trusting in their material resources. It's kind of like the story. Remember Jesus meeting the rich young ruler? Remember this guy coming to him and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? Because Jesus knows his heart, so he engages him in conversation, and Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And he lists off a few of them. What does the rich young ruler do? Nailed it. Excellent. All right. Good. I've done that. Yeah. All right. I've been good to my parents. Uh, I haven't, as we've talked before, what a what a low bar. I've all right. I've not killed anybody. Okay. All right. I've not stolen stuff. Again, that's a pretty low bar of expectations here. All right. Good. I've done. I've done that or not done that. Okay. And then Jesus then responds with this. Now, go sell every last material resource. Whatever you make from it, give every dime of it to the poor. You remember what the text then says after that? The man went away sad because he had great wealth. It's in the same vein that Jesus says it's easier for a camel shoved through the eye of a needle, right, than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. Again, he's not, he's not decrying wealth. Instead, he's talking about those who depend upon their material resources. So we have this early on here. Again, this is Old Testament language of salvation. We know it's greater fulfillment in Christ crucified and resurrected. And this is what Mary then is hinting at in her song. These grand saving purposes of God. This is what is going on in the Christmas story. This is more than just a sweet little baby boy. As the choir is so aptly sung, this is about freedom from sin. This is about salvation. This is about God's grace. Come down so that we wouldn't be lost, dead in our trespasses and sins. This is what God has done for us. And this is why I think it's important that we remember this message. That we think about this song of Christmas. Because this does so clearly draw our attention to God's saving purposes. One last thought here, and then we'll, we'll, we'll sing in response to what is God's Word. And, and I know there's one more point, all right, so you'll have to come back tonight. We'll have a few moments tonight, okay? And would encourage you to come back tonight. We're going to have a night of worship. Uh, I would greatly encourage you to be back. You don't have anything else you're doing. All right, so come back tonight, 6 o'clock. 
Uh, I've already prayed about it. All right. So I've already I've, you don't have to pray about it. I prayed about it. OK, so come back tonight, six o'clock. Uh, we really it really will be a blessing. I promise you uh, it will be another great opportunity to worship our Savior. And we'll, we'll look at a, at, a, at a fourth point that really leads us into next Sunday morning as well with Zacharias' song called the Benedictus. All right, so we'll get another Latin word next week. But again, all of this then really you know, forces us to see that, that the Christmas season is about, it's about God's greatness, it's about God's goodness, and specifically, it's about God's saving purposes, that God has intervened in order to rescue us from certain death. And I think all of Mary's words here are fascinating because let's do some geeky grammar stuff, all right? Did you notice the tense that it's in? It's in past tense. Let me ask you, are there any proud people still out there? Maybe one or two, right? Okay. Do we have any people who think they are mighty and powerful? A couple of folks, right? Uh, how about people who are trusting in their wealth? Anyone? Handful, right? Handful of folks, maybe, all right? In other words, the world, the world is full of these people, right? Proud, powerful, dependent, of, you know, who think that they, they, they have, they control the purse strings to life. But how does Mary speak about them? He uses what, she uses what's called a prophetic past tense. In other words, she speaks in the past as a way to declare that something is already as good as done, even though it hasn't been completely fulfilled. Here's what happens. In spite of the fact that they may not know it, it's much like Psalm 2. The nations rage and the people's plot in vain, but God has already established His Son on the throne. That with the birth of this child, there is already the fulfillment of all of the promises so that the proud have been scattered, they're as good as scattered, the mighty are as good as pulled down, and the rich are as good as being sent away empty. This is all fulfilled because Christ is to be born, crucified, resurrected. In other words, Mary can speak as if all this has happened because this is God's promise. And when God makes a promise, you can speak of it in the past tense. Is that not a grand truth, all right? That all of God's promises are always past tense. He's already done them. Oh, yeah, there's a greater fulfillment coming. But all of it's already been accomplished because of Christ. So as we have a time where we respond back, as we sing together, and as we have a time of invitation, maybe this is an opportunity then where you, if you are an unbeliever, You've never trusted in Christ. My plea to you that you would humble yourself before the cross of Jesus. And that you would come confessing you are a sinner, believing Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And that you would ask for God to save you based on nothing else. Not your own belief or intellect, not your own power and ability, not your own material resources, but instead humbling yourself, trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And the Bible promises that that hunger can be filled. You can be forgiven you can have your sins, past, present, and future forgiven. You can have your eternity secured. I'll be down front. If you'd like to know more about this, if you'd like me to pray with you, I'll pray with you. As a believer in Jesus Christ, perhaps this Christmas season would be a great season for you to think then, in what manner are you living the reality of this Christian life? In other words, is your life uh, reflecting what is the greatness and glory of this gospel? Let me remind you, church, there is no square inch of your life 
Not one. Not one millimeter of your life that's not stamped with the grace of God. Are you living like that? Are you trusting in this Savior? Have you trusted Him for salvation? And do you continue to be one who is lowly, hungry, and fearing God? Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, then this time will be open to you. Father God, we do thank You for this Word. We thank You, God, for what is a profound theological song of Your saving work in Christ Jesus. We thank You for what this season represents and how the Christmas season is the beginning and it's not the end. It is, it is You working to fulfill what is the grand plan of Christ crucified, resurrected, and then to look forward and knowing that same Christ will be coming again. And so, Father, may we find ourselves submitting once again to You, Your goodness, Your greatness, uh, in a way that You are glorified by how we commit ourselves to You, bring Your Word to bear in our lives, that it might continue to make us like Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.